Welcome to the Five Books for Catholics podcast, where experts explain their pick of five outstanding books on an aspect of Catholic life, doctrine, or culture. In this episode, Dwight Lindy will take us through his pick of the five best books by or on Jane Austen. Jane Austen is one of the finest and best-loved novelists in the English language. Catholics can learn a lot from her finely crafted character studies of Regency-era gentry. They are penetrating studies of the subtleties of commonplace virtue and vice. They are also informed by Austen's Christian faith. Dwight Lindley is the Barbara Longway Briggs Chair in English Literature at Hillsdale College. He has published essays and articles on Jane Austen, George Eliot, John Henry Newman, Jared Manley Hopkins, Virginia Woolf and others. He lives in southern Michigan with his wife Emily and their nine children. Professor Lindley, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, first of all, could you tell us a little bit about um, what got you interested in your own area of specialization and how you came to publish and research on Jane Austen? Certainly. Um, I, I got into literature proper because I wanted to study well, I love, I love, I've always loved stories, but I also wanted a discipline that where I could talk about everything. Uh, this is one of the things that initially attracted me to to novels and poetry. Uh, I could talk about philosophy, psychology, theology, history, all of the different, um, everything that comes into human life is there. Um, as to this period and Jane Austen in particular. I mean, I think I, I uh, have what Americans call an, you know, a certain Anglophilia. <laughs> I, I like, I, I've just always um, liked British literature and especially 19th century um, literature, big novels. Um, and, and so I had that interest already in college and then in graduate school, I, I began studying. I think it's J Jane Austen in particular, uh, I was drawn to from high school on. I had read some of her novels, Pride and Prejudice and Emma, I remember. And then uh, read her some more in college. And then it, it was not really until I was in graduate school that I began to, to really think more deeply about her. Um, but why was I drawn to her? I think I think it's in part her strange combination of of clarity and simplicity with uh, what with depth. This is uh, something that's un unusual, I think, and special in her. It's it's like clear, deep water. Um, her her stories, her her language. Um, I also think that I was drawn to her because. She has this sparkling intelligence um, <laughs> that is hard to describe. And my experience of reading her and reading what other people have written about her is that she is <laughs> smarter than the people who write about her. <laughs> um, she is she has an insight and uh, uh, a wit and a wisdom that really can't 
be uh, can't be caught easily, and yet it's present everywhere in her in her writing. So I'm just I'm really really impressed with her, and uh, and 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 uh, have always enjoyed that that intelligence of hers. Um, and then finally, I would just say I was really drawn to her wisdom about everyday practical life and uh, what I would call the drama of understanding uh, and self-knowledge that she presents. This is something that I think I enjoyed in her from the start. <clears throat> there are all these dramas about love, uh, famously, but they're always about the way that people who people in love um, misunderstand others and also misunderstand themselves and the way that they gradually emerge out of that into the truth. <clears throat> and uh, I think that's something that everyone enjoys in Jane Austen, but it's very hard to speak about as intelligently as, as she does. I really think I, I began to appreciate that more ex explicitly and, and, um, and concretely after I read more philosophy, because um, I think she's actually a very <laughs> philosophically rich novelist, um, but I didn't really start to see that until I had gotten more experience myself. And I, I would say particularly John Henry Newman and Alistair McIntyre um, helped me to understand some of what was going on in Jane Austen. So I'll, I can bring some of that up. Uh, later as we're going through specific books. And um, obviously we think of, you mentioned McIntyre, and sometimes we think of Jane Austen as a moralist. In fact, McIntyre mentions her in that vein in, I believe it's chapter eight or nine of his book After Virtue. <laughs> but Austen grew up in the faith. Her father was an Anglican priest. Two of her brothers were ordained. She was a practicing Christian. She wrote prayers, and in the half hour before she died, what were perhaps her last recorded words, she said, God grant me patience, pray for me, or pray for me. However, she did not wear her faith on her sleeve. So while it's easy to see her writing about the virtues, much as Aristotle does, is Christianity prominent in her novels, or is it secondary? It's a good question, and it's it's um, something that people have spilled a lot of ink on, because there's a sort of palpable Christian framework, uh, moral framework, and then that, that I think undergirds her her novels and her imagination. And then there are obviously some uh, there are some you know Christian social uh, t details and. You know, there are all these clergymen um, and so forth, but they're not what we have come to think of as Christian dramas uh, in a straightforward sense. So what to make of that? I, I think one of the things I would say is that, well, let, let me put it in two different ways. One, she comes from a time before... Christianity had really been challenged in her culture. Uh, in the in the later night, you know, she lived 
from the late 18th century to the early 19th century, a very short life. And um, she died in, in 19, 1817. What happened over the rest of that, that century, the, the 19th century, is that the German higher criticism of the Bible and of uh, the formulation of, of early Christianity, early Christian faith and dogma and, and, and uh, formation of creeds and all of these kinds of things, but especially the Bible. It was, it was destabilized by German uh, philologists and archaeologists and <laughs> comparative anthropologists. There was just this de de development of, of uh, all this kind of criticism of, of uh, organized religion and its texts, which really destabilized the, the faith of, of many in intellectuals throughout the rest of the century. And so when you read later novels from the 19th century, such as those by George Eliot and others. There's uh, religious faith is a much more self-consciously held thing. It's something that you always have to talk about and think about and work through your doubts about. Whereas for Jane Austen, there is no there is no destabilization. <laughs> she is just uh, very sure of her faith. So much so that she doesn't need to talk about it. It's just there. <clears throat> um, so that's one thing I would say. It's before this epoch of modern doubt that um, I think in the in the nineteenth, the, the later nineteenth and twentieth centuries, we came to take for granted. Um, you know, you never have a, a Graham Greene novel uh, or, or others like that without a drama of doubt and faith. Um, uh, so it's not a Christian novel like that, but I think it's a novel that takes Christian foundation, or her novels are, are, are books that take certain kind of Christian faith um, for granted and presume upon them. Um, everyone around her said her faith was very deep. When she died, her, her brother who wrote about her and her nephew who wrote another uh, text about her, they all talked about her deep faith um she, yeah but but also her subtlety and modesty about it she didn't um she didn't uh let's say she wasn't heavy-handed <laughs> about it um and she really didn't feel attacked in her faith and and so she she was just not very self-conscious um uh, about it i guess does that make sense Yes, it makes, it's, it's more or less the air she breathes. Yes, I think that's really true. Uh, I, I will say one last thing. <laughs> we can make our uh, we can make you know various objections to the, the you know to the kind of faith that she had, which had its limitations. Uh, mm -hmm. Cardinal Newman, when he looked back at her, <laughs> the faith of her, you know, her novels, uh, found it you know somewhat frigid and. <laughs> He has a, he has sort of a funny remark somewhere about her the Jane Austen clergyman who is just cold and stiff. Yes. <laughs> you know he wanted he he said something like no you know, no glimpse of the grand um, the grandness of Catholicism. I think he said this actually while still an Anglican because he had very self consciously made an older more Catholic vision his own. Um, 
under the strain and stress of that mid century where it, everything was up you know was up in the air and you you really had to find it more for yourself and make it your own anyway so 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 <laughs> later 19th century more romantic writers look back and say that's not enough but it's there i would say and okay. and uh there's something very rich there i just put it up because perhaps it's it's an aspect of her novels that we can sometimes overlook we can oh, yes. and and more recently she's presented sort of as a type of georgian regency writer of rom-coms but there's <laughs> more to her than that <laughs> yes, that's right. And uh, I mean, this is one of the peculiarities of Austen is that you can really spend a lot of time with her and not think about religion because it's it's so much under the surface. Um, <clears throat> and uh, and that this has been an advantage and a disadvantage to her. I think it's it's made it. Um, it's really widened her her readership uh, and her viewership, you know, in in the age of <laughs> all of these uh, these adaptations and miniseries and everything. Um, but then it's also facilitated misunderstandings. <clears throat> um, so I, I don't know. I, I tend to think it's an advantage in general because, um, frankly, because so many novels that wear religion on their sleeve end up being heavy-handed and it's, it's mm -hmm. actually very challenging to do to do well um so i i just tend to say let's take her as she is and um and we can we can think we can uh, look at religious questions and frameworks and foundations <clears throat> um, as they are helpful and useful um but then let's not expect her to be a 20th century novelist or um or a, a romantic or or even or certainly not a catholic novelist exactly um, although in certain in many ways she's sort of more comfortable with certain kinds of catholic ideas than than uh, many other novelists of her time and for example the the anglicanism of the the late of the 18th century and that that she was familiar with uh, was very comfortable with hierarchy <laughs> it was just utterly presumed um, um, hierarchy within the church and within the community, um, and you know, like uh, is just is something the hierarchy there, and then also a kind of basic uh, liturgicals. Um, I don't. We got to be careful with sacramental language. She she wouldn't have had this exactly the same understanding of sacraments that that a Catholic does. But there is still a presumption of um, liturgical order and broadly a sacramental understanding of the church and so forth. So um, let's go to the first of the five books you've shortlisted, Pride and Prejudice. This is obviously her most famous novel. Why have you put this on top of your list? I mean, I suppose it's because, precisely because it is a I've, yes, I've I mean, it's, it's an easy choice. Um, I think it is the greatest Austen novel. There are there are those who would dispute it, but I think it's an easy argument to make. And it's it's it is the most popular um, and best known 
um i think the the re the uh the, the cinematic renditions of pride and prejudice are also some of the best um i think also it's maybe the funniest of her novels which is another thing that attracted to me her to attract attracted me to austin as a as a young man in which i still enjoy and love this is a part of what's fun about teaching her um so i uh, i think that's why i put it first um yeah is there anything about the novel you would like to stress sure um so I'd like to say a few things about the way that Pride and Prejudice works, and some of this will will really uh, play out into her other novels. Um, but the the thing that I think it sticks out most in Pride and Prejudice to me, and which really illuminates Jane Austen's contribution in general, is the centrality of what I would call character reading. Um, Right there at the start of Pride and Prejudice, you have these two uh, you have these two relatively young adults coming into contact with one another, Elizabeth Bennett and and Mr. Darcy. And she's trying to read his character. Um, he even notices this at one point and asks her, are you a, you know are you a studier of characters? She says, well, yes, I try to be. And this is a, a characteristic thing, uh, practice of the time where you're trying to judge the kind of person you're dealing with. And in, in, uh, in Pride and Prejudice, you're trying to say who are you're trying to get a sense of who are you, the person that I'm dealing with, and what is the story that you inhabit? So it's a very literary way of thinking about everyday moral life that is being dramatized here. Lizzie Bennett is basically writing a novel inside of the novel Pride and Prejudice. And then the drama comes from her misunderstandings, her misjudgments of the people around her. She essentially imagines the wrong story uh, for herself and for Darcy and for this other young man, Mr. Wickham, uh, and the, you know, who is a, an army officer at the, at the beginning of the novel. And it's through those misjudgments um, that she is moved forward towards a, a sort of climax of the book, where her her narrative, which you know as fault, <laughs> her narrative, which is problematic, collides with reality and falls apart. <clears throat> and when that happens, when that happens, um, she realizes that she herself is the reason she has misunderstood that her misunderstandings have to do with her own moral weaknesses as a as a person so so uh part of what's so interesting about what i, what I like uh about pride and prejudice what's so interesting about it is it has this really clear depiction of the way that we try to understand the world by judging the character of others narrating the world that we live in <clears throat> And then trying that, and then trying that narrative, like, uh, and then, and then, uh, and then we have to deal with the the challenges to that narrative, which which inevitably occur uh, when it collides with real life. And what I'm trying to get to is that <clears throat> I think she has a great deal of insight into the into the way that 
our own personal moral life plays into that. Um, essentially, what she sees, she Jane Austen, is that if I have a if I have problems in my own character, if I have pride, for example, or vanity, uh, uh, or other vices, envy, and so forth, those things will occlude my vision. They'll block me from seeing certain kinds of things, and they'll cause misunderstandings and misjudgments. And I could I can end up living in <laughs> uh, I can end up creating the wrong kind of story for my life and misunderstanding my relationship to other people and misunderstanding the truth because of problems in my own heart uh, and my own character. And so when when Elizabeth Bennett experiences this kind of narrative collapse, um, it causes her to uh, to reform her sense of everything, including herself. She says famously, till this moment, I never knew myself <laughs> um, when her story collapses around her and, and she realizes this. So this is one of those things that I think Alistair McIntyre actually really appreciates about her. And it's very Aristotelian um, that, <clears throat> that uh, your character determines the kind of life you live and that prudence, the you know the the virtue of practical reasoning, uh, works in the world by judging the character of others, and that's how we make decisions all the time in life. Uh, this is something that's very very alive in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, and which McIntyre thinks of in an, in a kind of narrative way in After Virtue that we we tend to make judgments about others, uh, their character, by putting them into stories um, that we then try out against reality as we experience it. That's something that uh, very alive in McIntyre, uh, that's a certain kind of narrative Aristotelianism. But I think that he learned a lot of that from Jane Austen, who, um, who dramatizes it over and over again in her novels, perhaps most clearly in Pride and Prejudice. Does that make sense? Perfect sense. And you mentioned that you liked some of the adaptations of Pride and Prejudice for the small screen or the big screen. What's your favorite one? Oh, I mean, easily the the one from. You'll have to check the dates, but I think it's the early 2000s. Uh, and I'm pretty sure it aired on BBC first um, with Colin Firth, that one. Okay. It, is I think easily <laughs> superior. I don't. I don't really think much of the one from the later from what the the later tw twenty aughts. You know the uh, with the shorter one with Kira Knightley. I, <laughs> I don't really care much for that one. But the one with the earlier one, it might have even been the nineties. Uh, I think it was the earlier mid nineties. Okay. Yeah, that's that's the one that's uh, the classic. There are earlier ones than that that have actually more of Jane Austen's dialogue in them, but they're a little bit, uh, I don't know, a little bit more, a little bit stale, perhaps. Um, so, so that's the one that I, I think is the best. Thank you for listening. To read or listen to the rest of this interview, or to support this podcast, visit the website 
fivebooksforcatholics.com and become a premium subscriber. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast on the platform of your choice so that more people can discover it and give it a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, God bless.